Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. On this podcast, we talk about some bullshit for way too long. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Dungeon Deep Dive. We are back in the studio and by we, I mean to my right. I'm Lachlan, or so I've been told. And directly ahead of me. I'm Grace, or so you've been told. And so I'm telling you, I'm Tully Grimley. And uh, <laughs> hopefully this isn't the first episode you're listening to, but if it is... Oh, um, not, a good, not a strong start if it is, so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, right yeah, off the bat. Not uh, our wittiest intro. I think we're very funny. Oh. Okay, I stand corrected. You know yeah, what? Yeah, we have the jokes and the japes. This 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 conversation here, mm-hmm. this could be a podcast. Oh my god, we oh should make a podcast. We should make a podcast. We should start a podcast. Oh no! Ooh. Oh, I'm into it. Yeah, excellent. Well, well, we'll be starting a podcast soon. Before we get started today, we would like to acknowledge that the land on which we stand is tr- the traditional home of the Turrbal and Yagara people of uh, what is now known as Brisbane or Mianjin. These lands have always been places of teaching and learning and storytelling. And uh, we'd like to pay, re- pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Fantastic. Um, and with that, this week, gang, we are talking about everyone's favourite stinky green fellas. Well, b- before we do that, uh, in case we do have any brand new listeners, do we want to talk about what the podcast actually is? Oh, no. When do we ever do that? <laughs> Fine. Okay. <laughs> On this podcast, we talk about some bullshit for way too long. Um, I That's don't know. probably a much more accurate read of this podcast, to be honest. <laughs> it's um, a world-building podcast. We go into detail, looking into the history and the mechanics of things in the past that might be a little bit difficult to implement in, I suppose, a like natural and fulfilling way in your stories and D&D games and stuff. We mostly talk about D&D, but it's, it's, it's system agnostic. Yeah. And one of the big things about what we do is we're trying to find ways to make these little things interesting. Not every game has to be completely, perfectly accurate for everything it, that it does, but each week we look at a different topic and we find a way to, to bring that uh, into your world in a way that is... A little more interesting that brings some life to the world. Yeah, and I mean, there's a difference between just very rigid historical accuracy, I think, and and understanding that the things that we have in our games developed in history for a reason. And whether or not you want to actually use the actual historical reasons that these things came about, like whether you give a shit about what the old stories of ogres say that ogres came from and what they were like for example, you don't have to use any of that. But it's. I just think it's important to remember that these things did come about from something. None of this like ex- just appeared in a vacuum. And I think that if you're going to be changing things, uh, it's worthwhile to understand the detail 
so you can make sure that the thing you're changing it to still has that detail. Yeah. And uh, that's a nice introduction to what we're doing. Uh, it's probably as too long of a one, but that's fine. That's all right. Uh, as Lachlan said before, today we're looking at our big green stinky fellas, uh, our ogres, uh, and talking about the fact that for most of the time, they, well, they were big and stinky, but they weren't green. Not always. Sometimes. Sometimes. There were, there were green ones. There were green ones. Depends on where you go, really. Mm. Um, should I kick us off? Yeah. Yeah, if you want to kick us off. Okay. So what are, what are you looking at today? So I just kind of wanted to get into where does this idea even come from? Um, because Tolly and Grace are going to talk about uh, what we did with the idea, uh, like what ogres became and what you can make them into in the game and everything. But I was wondering, it's one of those things that's very established in our like culture. It's just like we know what ogres are. Yeah, you ask anyone what an ogre is, and like, there's almost whether they give you the same answer or not. There's almost nobody that speaks English that's not going to be able to give you an answer to that question, um, which is odd because it's a lot of. I feel like a lot of our monsters and stuff that we have have very clear links back in history with something else. Like you look at like uh, stories of of vampires and stuff, and that maps pretty well one-to-one to, like, old demonology from various cultures. Yeah. Um, you look at stories of, like, like ghosts and stuff very very obviously come from, like, uh, religion and spirituality and everything. But ogres are weird because they're just kind of... There. Nasty, stinky guys. Um, I refer them as nasty, sexy guys. That's true. They are pretty hot. There's a mm. reason why they're so prevalent in our mythology. <laughs> they're sexy. Mmm. Um... I watched Shrek. <laughs> that's that's all I have to say. You didn't find And that's the episode. Find, Thank you for listening this week. <laughs> you didn't find Shrek sexy? We all watched the second movie. Ooh. That's mm. true. That movie was Yes. I really liked it at the end when he became hot again. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um the problem with it though is and I think the reason that it's harder to work out where the direct line back in through back through history for ogre myths are is because uh, to quote Robert Fowler mm-hmm. uh, who wrote this book on uh, early Greek mythography um, there is a notable lack of canonicity in the myths there is almost no agreed upon progression here. We have some pretty good ideas. So, the best idea that we have is that ogre is probably a French word, uh, and we believe that it came from uh, the name of the Etruscan god Orcus. Mm. Orcus was uh, the uh, there's a word for it, the god of the underground. Essentially, it's interesting. So, apparently, the way that these gods developed was they weren't at least. Orcus wasn't originally like a Hades figure, wasn't like an underworld figure so much, as was literally, he was literally the god of like the underground. Okay, so this is, it's still like the place we put the dead, it's still the things under the earth, but it's not, there is another underworld, that is, it's more that this is the god that rules everything under where we stand. 
King of the Worms, baby. King of the Worms. They are called. Okay, so I'm uh, introducing a new, uh, a new good guy uh, for you guys to to get to know in your campaign. Uh, it's King of the Worms. <laughs> King of the Worms. Um, yeah, here we go. They're chthonic deities in, under, or beneath the earth. It literally means subterranean. So that's mm. Hades. That's Disparta was the Roman one. I couldn't think of the Roman one. Ah. Um, and yeah, sorry, I'm all over the place. This is ridiculous. That's right. Most of it's, it'll, I'll just cut out some silences. We'll be good. Also, um, for context, we're recording at 11 a.m., yeah, this is so, so unusual. Usually we finish recording somewhere <laughs> close to 11.30pm. Um, so this is, the sun is out, there's people around, it's wild. It's disgusting. The vibes are far different. Yeah, there's a very, it let, write, us, write in, let us know Am what I the happy? difference is between a, a morning recording and an evening recording. And they, can't, uh, they can't remember our evening recordings. We were recording from Lachlan's bedroom for so long. Yeah, true. <laughs> Either that or on Zoom. Um, God. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, we should preface this by, uh, for any international listeners, by saying that uh, in Queensland right now, we have basically <laughs> passed the yeah. whole thing, uh, which is incredible. Yeah. Uh, but to all our listeners overseas, especially in the US, uh, please, please... Stay indoors, respect social distancing, wear a mask when you do have to go outside. It is the only way that we have managed to keep our place mm. from from becoming mm. an enormous mess full of death and disease. Especially if you're out protesting, which is incredibly mm. important right now. The Black Lives Matter movement is doing some phenomenal work around the world. But it is really, really important if you're getting out there to remember to be using your PPE, to be washing your hands, to be yep. doing all those things, to be social distancing as much as you can. Because, I mean... Go out there and, and, and do the right thing and fight for what's right and everything, but don't like try to make sure that you're not putting everyone else in danger mm. doing. Yeah, don't don't get yourself infected. Don't get anyone else infected. Always act as if you have the disease. Mm. Fun fact. Fun fact. One new case in the last 24 hours here. Mm. I'm really mm. impressed by that. And that's, that's, that's since good. borders opened from uh, Victoria as well. Uh, mm. Our borders opened on the 10th. I mean, we're still. There are planes coming in anyway. That's true. Yeah, they, we're they, just not they're not officially open, uh, but they're open anyway. Enough of that. Yes. Lachlan, as you were saying. Um. Okay. So, yeah, Orcus, and uh, interestingly enough, Orcus actually does appear in D anD D as yes, uh, as, as a demon, god of undeath, the prince of the undead, prince of the undead. Yeah. So the Etruscan civilization. Just to preface, I came, was around just before the beginning of the original Roman kingdom. Okay. Um, and it was the rise of the Roman kingdom that led eventually to the decline of the Etruscan. Was it a s- empire? The Etruscan. I don't actually know what they were. Whatever their civilization was, mm. I don't remember off the top of my head. The I read Etruscans. it earlier. Yeah. Um, and Squad. So the Etruscan squad, it is now official. Orcus was kind of adopted in a sense by the Romans mm. because uh, there was this there was this way that the Romans would would try to discuss things from other cultures. It was a, it was a specific policy where essentially they would try their best to map the mythology of other cultures onto Roman mythology. 
the idea kind of being that, like, well, if our religion is right and these people believe in the god Orcus of the underground, then that probably actually is Disparta, our god of the underground, and they just have a different name for it. Or, at the very least, was trying to create, like, an equivalent between the mythologies. And that does explain the the incredible similarities between Roman and Greek mythologies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. There was a big movement in uh, Rome, even during the rise of Catholicism, to uh, explain the theology and the philosophies and everything that they were, that were, like, really prevalent at any given time, through Greek mythology. I a really want to see the early uh, justifications of Catholicism through uh, traditional Roman mythology. Yeah, it who was, does Jesus kin? It was... <laughs> a lot of it was using, uh, like, nature metaphors and stuff. So rather than trying to uh, take the idea of, like, Catholic, the ideas of Catholicism and mapping them onto paganism... Mm. Um, as paganism was on its way out, they would use like the rhetorical devices and the symbols and stuff of paganism, um, and they would use a lot of like. So there was a lot of like um, animato- anatomical allegories, which was very common in uh, like pagan culture. Mm. There were a lot of like, just like a lot of references to like a, an untamed nature that kind of contained the divine within it. Um, okay. Just this idea of, and and I believe there was a contrast drawn between the ideas of like pagan gods that existed within the world and the Christian god that existed without it. Like they they just like, so a lot of the mythology started to fall away around the time of uh, Catholicism, but the imagery that they used was just changed to suit Catholicism. Yeah. Um, whether that is a, a, a rhetorical move or was just a fact of, like, that was the culture that Christian apologetics uh, authors grew up in, so that was, of course, the language that they used to talk about their beliefs, mm. is up for debate, um, and, and there is debate about that, but they definitely did, at the very least, adopt the imagery, um, okay. even into justifying monotheism. But Orcus, though... Um, so there are some depictions in what was originally believed to be the tomb of Orcus in a tr- in um, at Tarakania, which was a place in uh, Etrusca. Um, but it looks like the actual images of Orcus, the the images of Orcus looking very like ogrey that we have now, might have just been because there was also that that uh, tomb was actually the tomb of a cyclops. And Orcus was just, like, the god that kind of dealt with that stuff. Okay. So I think it was a temple to Orcus, but the figure was a cyclops, which is really interesting. So you, you can then kind of see from this the influence of, like, Greek ideas about cyclops really influences the development of the yoga myth from that point onwards. Um, because... Uh, for instance, as I'm sure you guys will get into, ogres are often, like, surprisingly good craftsmen. They're mm. often, um, like, these kind of timeless, strong figures who are, like, who really excel in, like, whatever certain areas that, they, that they're supposed to excel in. Like, for instance, there are the, um, the old Greek cyclopses that were master craftsmen. The cyclops in the Odyssey is a shepherd. Um, they're always, like... 
they always have a job that is beyond them just being a big monster, being like an adversary. Yeah. Um, and that comes from this idea of uh, this this ancient Greek and this kind of pagan idea of the like inhabitants of the old like golden age of mythology, because what they believed was that this era was kind of before the gods. It was before like a lot of the things that we know of as happening within Greek mythology uh, were thought to have even occurred. And so the world was largely inhabited by monsters and by like wild animals. And so that kind of monsters were, and in fact, I'll, I'll grab, I'll grab the quote because it is a good quote. Hmm. Here we go. Yeah, so uh, it's talking. This is talking about how uh, the the cyclopses are kind of like these timeless things that come from this like mythical golden age, and it says, uh, Fowler says the golden age itself is an ambivalent concept, signifying both primitive barbarism and innocent perfection. Its inhabitants are very different from ordinary humanity, and one must tread carefully in their presence. The same insecurity attends anyone dealing with wild animals, those other denizens of the golden age. So it's this idea of like monsters weren't just unthinking brutes or just these cruel cannibalistic threats. They weren't pure evil. No, no. There was nothing irredeemable about a monster. A monster was more akin to the Fae in the idea that they are just these ancient, unfathomable creatures that come from a, a brutal and ancient culture in a time that you couldn't understand dealing with creatures that you could never even fathom and so their sensibilities and their like ways of socializing and their just ideas about right and wrong are so unfathomable to us unfathomable in the same way that we don't understand the moral values of the animals that we encounter as a bit of a side note i i just find it very interesting to track the, the, the mythology being these creatures are unfathomable, unfathomable um, back in a time where it was okay not to know things mm. as opposed to now where we are all expecting everyone to be experts at everything all the time, not being comfortable with anything that we don't understand, having it instead be, oh, it's bad. Mm. It wants to kill us. And that was, I think, a big fact of pagan life in general, was just this understanding that sometimes there were things you just weren't supposed to know or that you weren't supposed to know all about. It just wasn't your time. You weren't, the gods didn't tell you that, and so it wasn't your information to have. And so you weren't supposed to know how to interact with the Cyclops because Cyclopses weren't us. They're these ancient, scary, and powerful things. And they're not scary because they're violent necessarily. They're scary because they're incredibly powerful and we don't understand them enough to know how they want to use their power. Mm. We don't know what a Cyclops is going to do because when the Cyclops says to... uh, starts talking to Odysseus in the Odyssey, for instance... um, it just starts by asking him his name. Yeah. And then he doesn't realise... Uh, well, he obviously does realise because he doesn't give it his name. But the idea is that you could talk to that Cyclops and not realise that that Cyclops was essentially marking you for death by asking your name. Because the next thing that comes out of the Cyclops's mouth is Odysseus says, I am nothing. And he says, well, I'll eat nothing when I wake up. Mm. And then he goes to sleep. 
And that's when Odysseus uh, stabs Polyphemus the Cyclops in the eye because he's going to be eaten by him just because he answered his question, just because he was there and answered his question. Like, they're these horrifying, just, like, ambivalent creatures. Mm. Um, and obviously they have uh, influence coming from a lot of other things. Um, there, there's some clear influence coming from um, biblical accounts of giants, um, sometimes called Nephilim. Um, there's a... I don't remember what the Hebrew name is it, uh, for it, but uh, the but there's another name for them in Hebrew. Does that also track on German mythology? I because couldn't because there's there's the the German myths of um, Nibelung, I think it, it is or uh, Nibelheim, and it's it's these giant master craftsmen, uh, um, and so they were expert forgers and expert jewelers and uh, just stunning blacksmiths. Oh yes, the dwarves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, so it, it it comes from exactly the same thing. And in fact, this um this book that I that I have about um early Greek mythography, uh, directly draws the links from like those ideas of like, uh, of these old ancient timeless craftsmen. Like, uh, and they were timeless. It seems largely to fill some gaps in the mythology. Like they were considered to be immortal because. Uh, they they were actually rewritten. This one of the stories was rewritten to make them immortal, and then surviving an encounter with Apollo that the original myth said that they said that a bunch of cyclopses were killed by, purely because it seems it gave a good reason for some armor smiths to be forging weapons for Zeus in a battle that that like came later in the myth, um, and there would have been there wouldn't have been anyone around to make those thunderbolts for Zeus. So the so the myth was slightly altered because they were like, well, this doesn't make sense. So maybe it happened a little bit more this way, and that I think is where a lot of the discrepancy comes from. Is yeah, so a, a lot of the discrepancy seems to come from the fact that these myths were intended to be debated. You weren't supposed to know exactly what had happened in any of these stories, um, and in fact, uh, English originally developed uh, at least. English prose styles originally developed to specifically accommodate that because uh, it's a, it was a little bit of a tangent because I was reading it for a different episode, but I th- I thought that it really spoke to a lot of the discrepancies here. Um, the way old English was structured, and I'm sure you guys have read it. The hmm. the you know the times where you'll see a passage from old English, and instead of being broken down into like distinct sentences, it'll say. Um, Oh, what's a good example? And lo, the shepherds looked upon the the burning castle, and and they saw the fearsome wrath of the creature, and, and the city and, was and, raised to the ground and, and would never bear fertile fruit again. And <laughs> uh, they and they fled from the land. It's it's the eternal run on sentence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the it, and and it's true in uh, old English writing. They really didn't uh, put in much punctuation kind of at all. It was just this like big wall of text. Uh, here's a good example. Um, so it says, so this is a story about, uh, this is just from a chronicle. And it's talking about uh, in this year, this person and the Council of West Saxons took the kingdom off of this person because of their unrighteous deeds. And they had, an, except for this district, and he had that district until they did this. And he dwelt there until the swineherd did this. And 
he avenged the alderman and this. And then this guy came and did this and this and this and this and this. And then during the 31 years, he did this and this and this. And it's always and. So you've got a 17-page sentence. Exactly, exactly. And you'll see if you look at like chunks of prose and stuff, or if you read like stories from the era, specifically the story that I was looking at uh, was an Arthurian tale, uh, The Knight Sir Gareth. Uh, Because all of that shit, uh, Mallory, the guy who wrote it, wrote all of his stuff like that. Um, And it seems really tricky to read. And it seems like it's like kind of counterproductive. And even scholars said, have said like, this is indicative of like an unsophisticated style. He has like the ideas of a good novelist, but he doesn't have the sophisticated, he doesn't have like the sophistication to put it together in like, a complicated and interesting way. Because French, which was developing, like, literature as we know it mm. at the time, because it, uh, French was French was the language where the idea of, like, conjunctions and stuff came from. Uh, instead of joining sentences together by an and, French would be like, well, this guy went down to the shops and he did this. For when he did this, he would go and blah, blah, blah. And well, I actually happen to have a 16th century French story up right here in my notes. Oh, cool, yeah. Uh, so uh, he got up early in the morning and went out to the riverside where he filled his pockets with small white pebbles and then returned home. End of sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, there's stuff like... Yeah, which is... Um, I am resolved to lose them in the woods tomorrow, which may be very easily done. For while they are busy in tying up bundles of wood, we can leave them without their noticing. It's like a lot more cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Old English, that would be written more along the lines of, uh, and we can go and get wood, and getting the wood, we can leave it without them noticing. And without them noticing, we can blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so it's probably going to sound, in Old English, it would be more like... um, and, and he planned to lose them in the woods tomorrow, and he could do this very easily. Uh, and when they went to the woods, they were busy tying up bundles of wood, and they were able to leave them, and they went unnoticed. Yeah, there was a lot of repetition, a lot of alliteration, and all of the things were separated by these ands. And it seems to be that one of the main reasons for this was it let the author draw more stark comparisons between two things. You could, rather than explaining the link between two things, just say, for instance, in a passage that ta- that's talking about um, l- the relationship between Lancelot and Lady Gwendolyn, um, there is a knight essentially trying to argue, no, don't, don't, Arthur, don't be mad at Lancelot because he's in love with your wife because your wife's in because lo- your wife is also in love with him. And the way that Mallory talks about it to ensure that you can get his subtle opinion that he agrees that this love is true is he'll, instead of being like, well, I think it's true because of this, this, and this, it'll be like, well, he draws attention to, like, specific vocabulary thing. I wonder Um, if this is why all of the French fairy tales are just, like, way better. Well, that's Like, every version of a fairy tale we've got, you track it back, and it's, like, four dudes in Paris one year decided to just, like, write it all down. It's Yeah, it's the French or it's the Brothers Grimm. That's it. That's true. And it, even the Brothers Grimm, they took it all from the French and just made it darker. Well, they, they did the gritty the Batman reba- remake of the French tales. They took it from the Germans and wrote it like French. Yes. Um, yeah, no, Germany, G- Germany, were they were like... Um, Germany was surprisingly good at myths. Yeah, they were like, we have 
horrifyingly huge forests and really horrific weather. So we're all going to sit inside and be like, ooh, what's the monster in the woods? If you don't stay inside, children, the monster will come and eat you. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure yours is pretty much the same, but all, all of my early works that I work on, that I talk about are French, and then there's like one Italian book, mm. and that's it. Mm. But yeah, so so the way the way that the, the way that old English could work to draw these interesting comparisons was, for instance, in this passage where Mallory, the the author of some of these Arthurian legends, is talking about how essentially Lancelot wants to fuck King Arthur's wife, mm. um, to make it clear that he thinks that this is like a pure and legitimate relationship between the queen and the knight. He'll talk about like, well, yes. Lancelot was found in the Queen's chamber, and you think that it's for an evil reason. But I know that the Queen is really chill, and she's really good. And I know that she sent for Lancelot to reward him because he was good. And I know that the Queen had sent for him, and that he was worried about bad rumours being spread. And I know that the Queen's good to you, and I know that Lancelot is good to me, so I think they'd be great. I think it's fine. And so they don't really establish the cause and effect or the explanation means this. It's more, hey, here's all the things. It's like a somebody stuttering and struggling to make an argument. And it sounds like that. It sounds like it's unsophistication. But when you get into it, you realise that it's very consistent and it's very intentional and there are a lot of subtleties to it. So, like, for instance, instead of making it clearer the reasons, the, the link between the reasons, um, the author will draw more attention to the reasons themselves. So mm. then the audience gets to listen to the story and debate amongst yeah. themselves. You And... That is why a lot of these stories, to finally answer the, to make the point I was trying to make, don't really have any continuity between them because the way language was structured for English mythology in the medieval and early Middle Ages was built in a way that didn't explain the myths intentionally. So you would have, like, say, a story of an ogre that says, and the ogre was fearsome and he lived in the woods. And the woods were a terrifying place for the people of the town. And people in the town went missing all of the time. And sometimes the ogre came into town and terrorized everyone. And you don't actually have to be told the ogre's eating people in the woods. You infer that yourself. Yeah, and so then everyone gets to talk about it and tell these stories and be like, well, I know someone that went missing in the woods. It could have been this person. And I heard this story about this monster that was found in the woods. Maybe they're the same thing. And then so all these myths like naturally interlink. You've got to remember that this is not when the canon is being discussed. This is when the canon's being written. Yeah. And they're still in the middle of writing it. It was a collaborative process. And I think that's really the key thing. Um, Because you can see influences... Uh, from all sorts of other myths throughout ogres. There are clear influences from the Japanese Oni, um, Mm -hmm. which are like multicolored tusked demons, usually that wear clothes and hold weapons and like have that like same sort of infernal uh, malevolent intelligence to them. And who are actually uh, listed under the ogre subcategory in the monster manual in D&D 5B. True. Um, You can look at... uh, Some people say that... 
uh, Beowulf was a big influence, which I don't think is actually true, because the reason that people say that Beowulf's orcs were a big influence on ogre myths is because of the similarity, because people think the similarity means that that's where Tolkien got his ideas from. Yeah, that Um, seems to be one of the biggest arguments for Beowulf's influence is uh, the influence then on Tolkien or the language links between orc from the word orc coming from orcus and the word ogre. Mm. So it is true that Tolkien did pretty much invent the modern ogre. And it is true that it does have links to orcus. Mm. But it is entirely just because, and I know this for a fact because I was reading letters that Tolkien wrote, uh, it is entirely just because he appreciated the convenience of having a word that's so easily had a link to demons. That's the whole reason that orcs are called that, is because he liked how fitting the etymology would have been. Wow. So So it's really not much of a surprise, all the issues that have come out of orcs. Yeah, so essentially, the reason that ogres and orcs are confusing is because we think that Tolkien had done some research, and he had... He just also intentionally disregarded most of his research and instead went with just kind of the general idea that that had existed in every culture forever. Wow. Um, and Tolkien himself uh, talked in some letters. It's not clear in, 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 the stories them, in the stories themselves, but Tolkien, when asked about it, made it clear that he didn't think it was fair to say that even his orcs were like irredeemable evil monsters. And instead they were just like, uh, I think his, his explanation was that they were goblins that had been corrupted by a God that was like forbidden from creating new intelligent, like core races. Like they'd made mankind and the elves and stuff and they weren't supposed to make any more. And this guy had like so greatly altered uh, goblins to be like the image that he wanted that they weren't, irredeemably evil they were just a product of like like they they were intentionally made into evil uh but then could have been redeemed so they were just corrupted by an evil god is essentially what yeah yeah same idea as like and very obviously the same idea actually as goblins in dnd which were just originally random people that were corrupted by an incredibly evil god. And that's where their association comes from. Um, So I think that while I would probably avoid using some of that stuff uh, very heavily in a game, because I would would worry that you'd get too much into the, like, these are evil by by default things, Mm. there is some interesting nuance in even the, like, modern takes on that that seem to be going that way, where it's just, like, even, like, Tolkien's orcs are the product of circumstance. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so that's kind of where the ideas all come from. Um, yeah, it seems to mostly just be mostly be ogres and uh, orcus kind of being combined into one thing. Uh, it's Cyclopses wow. and, and orcus being combined into one idea. Yeah. And, and that, that's where ogres come from. That pr- tracks pretty nicely. I think, um, Grace, if you want to pick up from here. Oh, I mean, if I have to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, it's good. Um, okay, so basically my bit is how in the past, uh, as Lachlan said, the ogres were betrayed not just as like heavy hitting dudes. Um, they had a bit more nuance than they had like lives and careers and all that sort of shit. Um, so basically we all agree, everyone agreed, the ogres, they eat people. 
They mm. eat people. They eat people. They do. They do love to eat folks, they specifically eat babies. Well, it's you know, it's a little bite-sized snack. It's like popcorn chicken. Yeah, it's just you, you got to keep going. You, yeah, it's like a, it's a muesli bar. Babies just like muesli bars. Yeah, it seems like that might be less about a specific preference for babies because I've never seen I I haven't been able to come across any attestations that they specifically prefer eating babies I think they just all love eating people and babies are the easiest people to eat yeah plus I mean almost all of the yieldy myths about everything eating kids is they were just like man these kids just keep dying kids did just be dying we gotta explain this what if uh my kids went out to the forest one day to play and they didn't come back uh Ogres. Yep. Ooh. They got it. Oh, man, the ogres really suck. <laughs> um, okay, so basically, in the original Puss in Boots, uh, the like main villain is an ogre who lives in a castle. He's just a, he's a rich boy. Mm. This man has a castle. Um, so basically... Also, uh, just the, the, the whole myth, terrible to this ogre... Oh, this dude was just hanging out in his house. He was hanging out in his house and two snacks walked in. And he was like, uh, I don't know how I feel about this one. A cat just deliberately tries to kill him and steal his castle. That's just it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've been around cats. I know what they're like. Um, I will. I will also note uh, giants of, of of from like the same thing as well. Yeah. Uh, especially considering the like biblical origins. Oh, I didn't mention the biblical origins. The biblical connection is literally just there was a guy called King Og, and he was probably an ogre, and he was a big evil king, and Moses killed him. Huh. Uh. He's mentioned for like four seconds in like the Book of Numbers, uh, and like once in another book. That sounds like the uh, Bible. And then there's like a bunch of like not technically canon like uh, Hebrew writings there's like the book of like king og's adventures and it's literally it's a non it's canon in like one sect of uh it's it's a canon like one judeo-christian sect uh and it's literally just stories of king og and some giants like killing dragons and shit and that's just like a book spin-off yeah exactly it's just like a book about ogres fighting ogres and giants fighting dragons it's super cool and some people believe uh, that it is uh, religious truth, and I think that is Incredible. probably true. I really, I think they're right. I really appreciate the way people approach biblical texts in the same way that I like to approach Marvel movies, which is <laughs> if I don't like it, it didn't happen and it's not canon, I just won't interact with it anymore. Mm. Um, and I like the idea of reading the Bible and being like, oh, I don't agree with this chapter. I think this is out of character, and Jesus wouldn't have done that. <laughs> Fucking uh, King Og was too OOC in this book, <laughs> so I actually don't think that we should. I don't think we should keep this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you look at who the writers are, you you totally understand that they were influencing the work, and they're not sticking to the canons. So. Ugh. Honestly. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So basically, <laughs> the idea of these ogres living in castles. I mean, we've done castles. That mm. takes a lot of manpower to build. These ogres with castles and homes and shit. They were powerful people fully capable of interacting with humans and the environment around them and held positions of like power and importance because you're not going to bother building a castle for someone who's just like a bit scary they're probably lords they 
honestly, based on the old mythology, um, it would pr- I, it would likely be go unexplained in the actual stories about ogres because it would have just been seen as one of those like well obviously things mm. because of the they the, lived in a castle. the cultural history. Uh, the he almost definitely built that castle himself mm. because uh, I mean there were there were literally. Uh, there's a type of architecture called cyclop- cyclopean walls um, because there is there were some cities in ancient Greece with a very specific type of stone wall that their story behind them was cyclopses or ogres or giants or whatever they yeah. thought of them as uh, had built them in ancient times. Mm. So, like, it, almost definitely people would have talked about the king in Puss in Boots, uh, the, king, the ogre king in Puss in Boots as having built his own castle. Mm. Um, fun facts about this this ogre in this castle. He's a shapeshifter. This bad boy. Fuck yes. He's like, I could be something else, but I choose to be an ogre. And honestly, the body positivity, delicious. Um, yeah, this guy shapeshifts into all sorts of animals, which I mean, probably links back to Lachlan's idea of them as being seen as like other than human, closer to the mystery of a wild animal than necessarily a monster. Oh yeah, mm. from that like Greek uh, pagan kind of golden age idea. Mm. Yeah, because mm. um, in the story he changes into a bunch of different um, animals to show his power. Um, he turns into like a lion and all sorts of other stuff. And I mean, the story ends with him being turned into a mouse, um, yeah. which very powerful, very brave. Mm. Not a great idea, narratively speaking. No. Um, so there's another. Sp- oh yeah, and this was written in Italy in the 16th century. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is like prime, mm. just as it's getting out of old English, uh, out of the like weirdness of the old English, and they're finally getting into like the elaborate mythos. I think this mm. is one of the French ones, actually. This is Charles Perrault. Yeah, no, I know, but I'm saying that like these, the reason that this story would keep a lot of the uh, intricacies, oh, yeah, as opposed yeah. to the older ones, which would be up for more debate. Yeah, would be because once you got it into English, it would be a more one-to-one translation from the French by this time. Yeah, because we'd be looking, we'd be looking at modern English. Yeah. Um, so I think Tully and I spoke about this one the last time we played D and D. Actually, there's another story called Hoppo My Thumb, where basically the ogre's just like he has a family home, he has a wife, he has. Uh, seven he has, daughters. He has a bunch of daughters. They're just straight up folks. They just yeah. do. They They're just, just live in a house. They're just people. They have a little house. I'm pretty sure they're living in like the forest with his wife and his children. Mm-hmm. These are just like hanging out. Yeah. These are completely normal ogres. Yeah, which I which I think really draws attention to like the comparison to the Fae. This is just like another thing with just an a society you can't understand. Mm. Um, there's a great from Hopper My Thumb. There's a great quote here. Um, this follows. Yeah, th- this is uh, as this ogre's wife is offering Hopper My Thumb and his seven brothers and his six brothers uh, accommodation for the night. Uh, she's saying, "Oh, I'm going to hide you because um, because my husband will kill you." But for although this ogre ate up little children, he was a good husband. Uh, and that's just the perfect, like that. That is just abusive relationships one on one. That's that's just how it comes across. But but I mean that would have made so much sense to the people who heard that at the time because mm. they would have just been like, well, yeah, of course, of course, the ogre does some things that seem really fucked up to us. They eat people. 
Yeah. They hit people, I'm sure so. a lot of their customs seem gnarly. And that would have just been, like, how you deal with it. I, I will note, uh, Perot, who, like, popularised, it seems to have popularised this story, uh, was the the guy who invented the word ogre. Sexy. Yes. Yeah. Good for him. Um, also, just He was the one that finally took all those things and made them ogre, specifically. Just want to say, if I'm a 16th century woman living in the middle of the forest with my six daughters and my husband sometimes like to kill some kids, but otherwise is a great guy, I'd probably be like, all right. If they're not You're your not eating kids. me. You're not eating my kids. We're just hanging out. You can yeah. have somebody else's. Mm. Who let their kids wander around the forest anyway? That's on you. Um, but yeah, basically he has a wife, he has daughters, he lives in a house. Um, as Tully said, they let these little boys stay in their house overnight and, uh, I mean, the daddy, the daddy ogre does find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the story that I have has was talking about them not being invited in so much as lured in, and the idea was that this this ogre wanted them inside the house because it's easier to grab, grab a bunch of kids out of bed at night than it is to chase them around the woods all day. Ah. Um, so the idea was like this ogre was more brains than brawn and was like, actually, this is going to be way easier. Yeah, come stay the night. We'll put you up in the room with our daughters. They'll keep an eye on you. I'll sneak in, scoop you all up, and it won't be a problem. And the only reason there was any like conflict in the story was the fact that these boys were like, my mum told me not to trust ogres, so I'm going to leave really early in the morning before you can come and get me. Specifically, hop on my thumb. The the six brothers, mm. dumb as dog shit. But this one kid who was the like supposedly like the little scrawny one, mm. th- that's the moral of the story because all these French tales had morals. Yeah. The moral of the story is hop on my thumb, the scrawny one was the one that brought the family wealth. Mm. Yeah, who listened to the stories and was like, we cannot trust ogres, we have to leave. And listening to the stories was what kept him alive and brought him immense wealth. Mm. So it was sort of like a, yeah, so you've been told ogres will hit you. What happens when they're smart? Still, do not trust these guys. Leave. Yeah, and I think think that, um, I think that tracks with, um, some of the I, I was reading what the Encyclopedia Britannica had on ogres, and they were talking about how uh, it's also been commonly used as uh, like a literary uh, like allegory for like tyrants and despots and dictators and stuff. The sort of person who, for their own aims, will swallow up human life. Well, essentially, just like treating their like subjects as like disposable. Mm. Um and just like consuming their like life force and their labor for their own like personal aims. Um, so I think that it seems that association was actually built between cannibalism and the wastefulness of tyrants with human life. Seems to have actually been drawn pretty early because it seems like a lot of these are like, uh, so like like a like the head of a household or the head of a castle or something who is just like throwing away human lives for nothing just because it's like makes their life a little bit more convenient mm. yeah so I, I i just think that's i just think it's interesting that that seems to be like such a recurring theme because mm. it's so different from how we see ogres as like this like monster in the swamps or in the caves or whatever it yeah it changes it from a, a monster to a brutish authority yeah it's supposed to be like it was so often an allegory for for yeah for authority yeah mm. which i think is just an interesting element to to kind of like bring back into yeah, to bring back uh, into, into the, our the trails. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, Tully, did you want to talk about how you were going to loop yours into? Because we have yeah. a, we had a lot of overlap, so we could sort of we can sort of vibe on. We that. can Venn diagram our two pieces together and meet in the middle. Yeah, sort of. We'll, we'll dovetail it together. Is that is that what, um, is that what you got though? Yeah, that's really the stuff that I had that was that I thought was interesting and useful. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so I am basically looking stories. at ogres post the invention of the word, um, and that sort of early mythos where ogres became a not a defined myth, but they became uh, a myth as distinct from giants or uh, cyclops. So when ogres themselves, basically, when ogres became ogres, ogres. yeah. So when they distinctly became ogres. Because it is interesting that we never really dropped a lot of those older ideas and the older no. names for what was ostensibly the exact same creature across different cultures. Yeah. Uh, we just took all of them and we've made them all different now. Yeah. And it is worth mentioning here that I am deliberately excluding the myth of the Oni because it is actually its own distinct mythos Um and I think it probably deserves its own... Oh, absolutely. ...its own spotlight there. there. There's a reason that I only mentioned Oni in the sense of, like, s- some of the physical characteristics probably derived from stories of the Oni, because the yeah. Oni is just, like, its whole own thing. Yeah, and it's... Yokai in general is just, like, a whole complicated... We I should do yokai. yokai. Have you guys seen the TV show Yokai Watch? It's I... great. It's, like, it's literally, like, kind of half Ben 10, half Pokemon, but with, like, little Japanese spirits. I played cool. the demo for the 3DS game. Was it good? It was fine. It was fun. It was just like Pokemon, but easier. Nice. <laughs> I think it's for a, a younger audience. Yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, so uh, basically the first distinct reference of ogres, not with the word ogre, which was later used by... Mm. Um, oh, no, actually, sorry. This, this does appear to be the er- earliest... This is in Percival, Story of the Grail, which is, again, a French story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it talks about the colonization of Albion, which is the what we know as, as England. Um, and it talks about... Uh, so, it, basically, the idea is um, there's a rhyme that includes um, the land of Loga, um, and it's full of ogres. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I've seen this. I've seen this. No, you, sorry, you're right. It was Perot that m- did the thing yeah. with it that turned ogres into that, like combined those two things. But you're right. It was totally that. It was that a convenient verse. rhyme. That verse is absolutely where it came from. Um, and the these giants that these ogres that were supposed to have roamed the land were actually also referred to as giants very frequently. These giants uh, were begat from. There's Albina, who was one of the women that colonized uh, Albion. Uh, mating, they didn't have any men with them, so they mated with Incubi, creating a race of giants, who, from there on, uh, they were reported as being 20 cubits tall, which is at least 30 feet by the smallest measurement of what a cubit is. Mm-hmm. That um, is based off of, I assume, the Bible? That's yes. King Og. That's King Og's, uh, the size of King Og's bed. Yes, um, Gog Magog is the most famous of them. So Gog Magog is the later myth that I'm assuming comes from King Og. Well, King Og is only significant in that he was the only survivor of when all the giants were killed. So uh, and he's the last... Were, the so most there were other, like, more important giants before him. He was yeah. just, like, the only one that Moses was still... Was around, was around when Moses could kill him. Well, in the French myth... A uh, late 12th book. century, Percival. Oh, Percival, okay. Um, so, and... Uh, so part of what I'm going to talk about here is I'm going to take these myths and figure out how to make them more interesting. So it's not just, hey, it's a big thing that hits you. Mm. Um, because 
ogres, uh, specifically the D&D 5e stat block, it's fucking boring. Yeah, they're, they're just big zombies, really. Pretty much. They're just big zombies. They're big, dumb, slow, and hit hard. Like straight down to the, they just kind of hit you, and if you don't do damage in the right way, then they just refuse to die. Oh, and no, that's, that's, kind of their thing. that's not even a thing. I got confused. That's trolls. Is that trolls? Is that not even ogres? That's not even ogres. God, ogres are so lame in D&D. They are. Uh, so, um, basically, he's reported of being at least 20 cubits tall, but after he broke Corinius's ribs, so Gogmagog broke three of Corinius's ribs. As you do. Um, Corinius then picked up Gogmagog and threw him off a cliff, Good. which is not something that a normal man can do to a 30-foot creature. Um, so His bones are this, hollow, like a bird. Like a bird. From this, I'm taking that Gogmagog was able to be as tall as he was, um, or may have just been big, um, but was also light enough to have been thrown off a cliff by a man with three broken ribs. And I'll, I'll kind of refer back to this because the next stuff I'm going to talk about is the stories of Charles Perrault, who wrote a book with, I think, six different stories that included ogres out of the whole collection of stories. He loved ogres. So we've got Hop on My Thumb. Now, this is more about the personalities of them, mm. uh, which is that they are cunning. They like to trick people, but they're also very easily fooled. Uh, now, the example here is that uh, basically... He was convinced to, or convinced them, the children to, whichever way you want to see it, to stay in his house overnight and eat them in the morning. That was sort of the idea. Um, in this, in the one that I read, his wife, uh, the ogre's wife, convinces him to eat them in the morning. Mm. Which um, is, and uh, not to keep harping on it, but you can see some clear influence of the Odyssey in there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what happens is uh, this giant has seven daughters. Each of them wear a golden crown. Now, this golden crown pops up very regularly. Um, so this is something uh, you notice when I used the ogre in our game. He was wearing a golden circlet. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was just, I don't know what that does yet. That's a clear influence from... That's just fun. That's just fun. Yeah, it's, it's just flavor text. Flavor text. They're the refame in Hebrew, the oh. giants. Um, I will. I will note. Uh, it seems like there is some contention uh, biblically as to whether or not uh, the giants were that tall, because originally uh, King Og specifically was considered to be thirteen feet tall, okay. um, or between nine and thirteen feet. But later on, uh, rabbis stopped talking about the cubits of his bed as being the, like, because cub- the cubit was, um, like, the length of your length of a forearm, mm. uh, roughly. Um, rabbis later started saying that uh, Og's cubits were measured to, to his forearm, not to a human's forearm. So that's where, that's why you'll see in, like, the early biblical accounts, uh, he seems to be much shorter than the 30 feet that, that he become that he and his kind become later on. Yeah. Uh, because later on, they're using their own arms to measure their, to measure their height. Oh, but wow. But the actual values, the units don't change. There you go. So the cubit becomes twice as long. Wild. So there's uh, that. Yeah. Um, so... Basically, what happens is in the story. Uh, spoiler, just spoiler warning for Hop of My Thumb, in case you, you're intending to read it. Um, I mean, look, it's going to be. I'll cover my ears. Yeah, I'll that, my that's my headphones fair. off. Uh, so basically, what happens is overnight, uh, 
Hop on My Thumb wakes up super early and, knowing that the giant is going to recognise his daughters by their golden crowns, swaps the golden crowns that they are wearing while they're sleeping with the bonnets that he and his brothers were wearing. And so the ogre, when he wakes up earlier than Hop on My Thumb to kill them in the middle of the night, slits the throats of his seven daughters and goes back to bed. Thinking... Yes, thinking that they were the, the son, the brothers. Interesting. Because they were wearing the bonnets. So they are very easily fooled. And this actually frequently happens. All of these myths have these ogres that are cunning. They are tricksy. They will try and deceive you. But they are also very easily fooled. And it's it, and uh, and again, it really speaks to that fake connection. Mm. Uh, that like very like, and to like the pagan origins of the myth in the sense that your biggest threat when you encounter an ogre is always going to be that you don't know how the ogre functions. You don't know going into an ogre's house that just being here means you're going to be eaten in the morning and now because of some weird custom you're stuck here and you can't leave. Yep. Um, And you're just going to die. But you also can hope that because of the specificity of their rules that you can use them against them by being like, well, if your rules say that you're going to eat anyone that that has this circlet on, yeah. Then I'm just going to put the circlet on someone else. Yeah, and so I'm not sure if it's by the rules or by the... Like, just they are gullible. Oh, uh, yeah, but... Both I, are doable. I, I, and that's what I'm saying. Like, it's it seems like the ogres have a very similar concept to the Fae, wherein they have, like, very specific customs and rules mm. that they are... That, that both put you in danger, but can also, like, backfire on them if exactly. you work out the rules. But rather than the Fae who, like, have a book of rules, it seems like the ogre is just kind of, like, more intuition-based, yeah. which is interesting, rather than having, like... Like, you, it doesn't well, seem like you could ask another ogre what the rules of one ogre is. Yeah. There's actually, uh, further on in the story, once Hop My Thumb disappears... Basically, Hop My Thumb wakes up his six brothers after um, the others have been killed and says, we got to get out of here. Let's go. Um, so they book it. The wife wakes up to go wake, wake up her daughters, sees them all drenched in blood, and faints. Um, and there's a little dry comment from uh, Perot there, uh, like something, something like, uh, as a mother is wont to do in a situation like this, <laughs> um, basically saying, you would too, wouldn't you? Um, so That is a very, like, fucking... <laughs> The late 17th century French comment to add yes. to a thing. As a woman would do. After all the time I spent looking at the, the, the differences between uh, like Middle English and French at the time, like that's such a French thing to say. Absolutely yeah, it is. Because uh, old English authors had, in the, in, in the words of one scholar, the tact to remain in the background. <laughs> uh, the French, not so much. They wanted you to know what they thought. Yeah, exactly. This was about them, not the um, story. So what happened is the wife faints and the ogre, who desperately wants to make uh, to avenge his daughter's deaths so that his wife isn't upset with him, um, which is, again, a very French sentiment, I think. Oh, yeah. Very 17th Fuck century French. Fuck my friend. kids. I love my wife. <laughs> yeah. Um, so well, he, kids died all the time. Wives yeah. hopefully didn't. Mm. So he puts on his seven-league boots, which are a magic item that I will be talking about later, um, which allow him to travel fast distances and he goes racing after them. Now, Hop and My Thumb sees this over the distance and gets all his brothers to hide and eventually the ogre gets to where they are and is so exhausted from wearing these seven-league boots that he sits down and takes a nap. At which point, Hop and My Thumb steals his magic boots, uh, runs back to the ogre's house to tell 
the ogre's wife. Your, your husband's been captured and they're demanding that he give over all of his riches. He gave me these boots to give you this message. You'll need to give me all of your riches to save his life. And then he just takes it and leaves? And he just takes it, fucks off and goes back home. Because the ogre's life. out in the woods. He doesn't, he's not going to get back. Without his seven league boots. Oh, he'll never get back in time. And, and so his poor wife. That's the story. <laughs> yeah, his poor wife. So that's hopping my thumb. And it's, it, the whole thing that I get from that is they are very willing to trick you but very gullible themselves. Um, and it sort of, it, it strikes me as a high charisma, low wisdom kind of character, um, if we're going to use the, the 5e terms. Yeah. Um, so they're actually, I would, I would say they are remarkably charismatic. They're I in would, positions of power. I would argue probably high wisdom, just low intelligence. It seems like, because it, it seems like there is like an innate understanding to them. Mm. And because that innate understanding doesn't extend to the complexities of, like, human socialization, they're not on the lookout for deceit. Mm. They're on the lookout for, like, manipulation and trickery. And if you clearly actually did show up with my husband's boots, then, like, well, like, if you show up saying you're in my husband's boots, I think an ogre is looking for a sign these are the wrong boots or a sign that, like... Yeah, he's looking for a trick, not for just outright deceit. It, like it seems like it seems like they're not capable in the myths of seeing that this adds up because you planned it well. Yeah, they're like this adds up because it must be true. Yeah. Um. So that's sort of the personality traits, and I, I like would like to bring a little bit of more of that. It's purely into deductive it. reasoning. I yeah. think that's what it is. It's purely deductive reasoning. So based on rules that we don't know. And the next story kind of follows this up again, as Grace mentioned. This is uh, the Master Cat or Puss in Boots. And putting aside the details of the story itself, because the ogre is actually less of a villain and more like a side character. Mm. Um, but essentially, what happens with this ogre is Puss in Boots appears and says, "Oh, Master, you, you know, Master Ogre, you uh, there, there are tales of you being fearsome, and I heard that you can transform into all manner of things. But I don't really believe it. And surely you can't be something as fearsome as a lion." And so he transforms into a lion to, to prove these, this great, powerful shapeshifter. And Puss in Boots is like, oh, goes, oh, no, you're terrifying. But surely someone as, as large and majestic as you couldn't be something as, as tame and meek as a mouse. And so just to prove a point, he turns into a mouse. And Puss in Boots eats him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, it's, and I think it's, it's interesting because it really does seem like because these creatures are supposed to be, like, timeless and powerful and, like, eat people for fun or for food or, or whatever, depending on what story you're looking at, they really do just regard themselves as, like, inherently superior. And so, like, maybe hubris is it seems is possibly their biggest downfall most of the time. Speaking of, if you look at the traditional Sleeping Beauty, um, what, be- what, what be- has become the Wicked Stepmother was actually an Ogre Queen. She was an ogre pretending to be the queen. Uh, So basically what happens is she, as the queen... In Sleeping Beauty? Yeah. In the Disney film. I didn't realise the mum in in Sleeping Beauty was bad. I thought it was the witch. uh, She has a bad mum too? Yeah. Jesus, this poor girl. I'm Um, glad she hadn't lived in the forest for like however long. I think it's kind of split off. I didn't look too much into the what it, how it became what it did, but I think the witch actually is uh, sort of a split off from what was 
the stepmother. Well, because, and I mean, it's a lot clearer, I think, in the... I think the Maleficent, the movie, did a better job mm. of giving, like, the vibe of these old stories and stuff. But you can kind of see it throughout the old Disney ones as well. Um, th- they didn't really see the fairies and the, like magic things in the way that we they weren't like witches and wizards in the way that I feel like we tend to think of them now they're people with magic yeah even back then it was like either someone with like weird power or some creature that looked Mm. like a person and like because even like like the fairy godmother obeys like in Cinderella for instance obeys like weirdly a fae-esque rules uh Maleficent uh curses curses Aurora because of the, and it's like a lesson about like, well, you thought she was dangerous, so you shouldn't have invited her, but the, but being mean to her was really the only reason she'd be dangerous. It's mm. like a very like, all of these things are embodiments of, more so of magic and chaos and an obstacle that the protagonist has to overcome and less creatures in their own right. Mm. They're more responses from the world to your behaviour than anything else. Well, so this story, essentially, this, this ogress queen, um, who is a hidden ogress, she's, she's disguised as the king's wife. Um, whether or not this is as, you know, the original wife or a second wife or whatever, it's sort of the stepmother is what came from it, the wicked stepmother. But uh, she demands to eat uh, Sleeping Beauty's children and then her. Uh, now, the... Uh, what Sleeping Beauty does instead... Well, so what the chefs do instead is instead of the first child, they substitute it with a lamb. In the second meal, they substitute the second child with a goat. And then in, in char- uh, instead of Beauty herself, they use a red deer, which are these very large deer. That, mm. um, so, and the Ogress Queen does not tell the difference, does not know what the difference is and happily eats those up as if they were... These the the children and beauty herself. Um, now, when you know, so then this ogress queen at this point in the story has prepared a pit of vipers and other noxious creatures. Of course, for the king is going to topple him and become the queen. But Sleeping Beauty comes out and exposes her for what she is, and once discovered, she throws herself into her pre-prepared pit of vipers and other noxious creatures to be eaten alive. Interesting. So just having been discovered, she was like, no, nope, that's it. I'm throwing myself into a pit of death. And see, that's what I'm saying when I say that I think that they follow rules. rules. That just the people who were writing the stories at the time thought was so either self-evident or otherwise so alien as to just be unexplainable mm. anyway. And that was kind of the point, that they didn't write them down. Because it seems like a, a lot of these creatures are just kind of being like, well, you bested me. I yeah. know when I've been beat. And and they just let... And even though they could then later defend themselves... Like, I'm sure that as soon as Puss in Boots put that ogre mouse in his mouth, the ogre could have then turned back into a lion and exploded Puss in Boots' head. Mm. But he was like, well, you got me. You um, fucking got me, dude. And basically, yeah, a lot of, a lot of this myth is very specific. I'm going to do a bit of a speed run at this point because I know I've been rambling on about a lot of different stories... Um, I've got here the bee in the orange tree. Um, the, there's an ogre couple finds an orphan and decides an orphan girl um, as a baby and decides to raise her uh, to, rather than raise her rather than eat her in order to marry her to their son. Um, 
so it shows that they actually, ha- again, they have families, they build relationships with people. They are cannibalistic, but they're not animals. They don't just kind of eat you because they do. Well, they're also not, I think it's I think it's important to re- Sorry, they're not cannibalistic. They are. There is a lot of association in mythology between them and cannibals, but they are distinctly not human. They don't eat ogres. They, they are eat, these like yeah. immortal creatures that would see humans in mm-hmm. a very similar way to humans at the time seeing like livestock and stuff and like game animals, things that just kind of like existed and were around and you outlived them. So and you would see like 15 generations of them in your lifetime. And they have a stunning link to nature. Uh, in this story, they actually call upon a red deer to nurse the child. Interesting. Um, and they speak their own language. They speak giant, um, as shown in, in here. Or I'm, I'm assuming they speak giant. They speak a language of their own because as they raise this human child, she's not capable of speaking to people from the land that she comes from. She can only speak to She can other, only speak to other ogres. Like giants and ogres and shit. Yeah. Um, so there's also a, a, a link that they raised more animals. Um, they actually had a camel that they used um, as a... Um, as a pack animal that uh, this this child steals. Um, they also had a lot of magic artifacts. Now, magic artifacts are really common in ogre myths. Mm. Um, there's the seven-league boots that we had before. In this particular story, they had a wand that could transform a prince- the princess into a boat woman, uh, a, the prince into a boat, the camel into a lake. She turns a camel into a lake. I think we need more of that. I think that's the reason why we've had so many droughts recently is because we don't have enough ogres turning camels into lakes. into lakes. We have a lot of camels in Australia. Could you imagine if we just, like, lake some of them? Um, and they also had... They wore gold crowns, and the crowns were an identifying feature of things that they didn't eat. Um, See, okay, <laughs> I, th- it, it is remarkable that you said that because I was just thinking, like, we joke... We joke as a society, but the fact that homeopathy came to exist in a world where, like, fucking half the myths were like, well, I don't know, camels don't need water for a long time, so they probably have lots of water in them. They so I guess if you, would a, if you were to turn a camel into anything, it'd probably be a lake, because camels don't drink water. And, like, that's your thought process? Like, of course we thought that fucking a, a, a walnut looks like your brain, so it cures your brain tumour. We were on our, we were on some fucking wacky shit. Yep. Turn a camel into a lake, just because camels don't fucking drink much. That's the opposite of how that works. I guess they have more water in them. But it's like, shut up. Weirdly enough, <laughs> if you squeeze a camel like a like a wet rag, a, a lake full of water will come out. That yep. does make sense. I um, just think that's I just think that's uh, that's remarkable. So I've got another three myths before I go into uh, actually like building something a little bit or just uh, just throwing it to the floor. Okay, sorry, I'll let you um, get, I'll let you get through yeah. it. Yeah. So there's one of bearskin. Um, so there's a, a princess is trusted to. The ogre rhinoceros. Yes, the ogre is named <laughs> rhinoceros. Um, is that where the word came from? No, no. It's, this is after the animal became came around. What? Um, because his favoured form was a rhinoceros. He could transform <laughs> into a rhinoceros. Oh, and so fuck, this is what funny. he became uh, when he went hunting. He was a rhinoceros. Um, so the princess is able. The princess who is has a you know a fairy godmother of sorts. The fairy godmother sews her into a bear skin, but because of that, she magically turns into a bear. Of course. This isn't the fairy godmother's doing. 
This is just magic that happens. Yeah, this is just how it works. Um, of course. So I think Bears ogres like having that. magical lairs is also very good, like latent magic that sits around. Um, and the prince, so the princess turns into a bear, um, then believes the, the, the ogre then comes back, rhinoceros comes back, and the fairy godmother says, tells him that he ate the princess in his barbarous rage. And rhinoceros believes her. Cool. They are rather gullible again. I mean, um, to be fair, and then he. If I got upset and Lachlan and I went looking for something, and I was like, "Oh my god, where are the two minute noodles? Where is the bag of chips?" And Lachlan was like, "You, you got upset them. last night and you ate them." I'd be like, "Oh, yeah, that's yeah." That sounds you know like what? me. And <laughs> Classic. Um, he then bribes his way into the nursery of the castle, uh, in order to eat the children overnight. Describe, disguise, and then disguises himself as an astrologer to convince the king that his wife did it. Um, he also is noted as having seven league boots. Um, that's just more a side note than anything else. Perro just really loved these seven league boots. Um, no, sorry, this is the Italian's tales. This this is from Pentamerone. Um, uh, well, a lot of those a lot of those tales were what uh, Perro was drawing from when he because weirdly enough. There was a weird trend around this time to essentially just rewrite other people's stories mm. in your language with your style, and that was kind of it. Because um, it would just be like, oh, well, this story was cool in French. I'll write it. Yeah. I'll write it now. Uh, it's mine. Again, there's this, um, oh, no, I've been defeated, I must leave kind of thing, mm. um, where he gets exposed by the princess who he had captured, who turned into a bear, who then turned not into a bear to expose him for trying to trick the king into killing his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Really, there, there doesn't seem to be any, apart from amassing power and eating people, there doesn't seem to be much of a, a motive to anything else that they do. Um, yeah, they're very... They've got simple goals. They're very mundane in that sense, yeah. which which I think speaks to them being used more as an allegory for things that people actually did, because it would be like, yeah, no, they really do just want kind of wealth and power. Yeah. Um, That's it. So then there's, again from Pentamerone, there's the Tale of the Ogre, Um in which a lot of magic I- there are a lot of magic items. Now this is actually a really funny one because the ogre takes on uh, essentially an apprentice, basically free labor in exchange for food, for food and board, um, and gives this. And it's about a gullible kid. That's literally what this one's about. Um, and he basically takes this kid in and says, "Okay, I've got a task for you. I've got this donkey here that that pisses gold. It literally well it." It doesn't show whether it pisses gold or it shits gold, but it, it excretes gold in some way. Um, incredible riches. Um, when you say a certain key word. And so he says to the, to the boy, okay, take this to a certain place. Uh, I, need, I need it to, to go look after this while I'm away. Go to the nearest inn. Uh, keep, uh, keep it safe. And then the child, wanting to sell it for his own gain, runs away. He takes it to the inn. And he says to the innkeeper, don't say the magic words. And so the innkeeper says the magic words, realises it's a magic donkey, uh, and then swaps it out for a mundane donkey, and he loses the, the donkey. So he comes back tail between his legs to the ogre, and the ogre goes, I can't believe you've done this, you stupid child. <laughs> well, take this magic item, look after it. It's curtains. If you say open, they open. If you say close, they close. Don't say those words around them. And so the child, again, tries to run away with this item. says, open. There's riches behind it. It's a portal to a magic vault. Uh, so he goes, runs away. 
know, stays in the inn overnight and says, keep this away from anyone who would say open or close. And the shopkeeper does exactly the same thing, steals them away. Uh, the last bit is obviously everyone gets their comeuppance. The ogre says, girl, you stupid child, you lost another thing. Here, take this magic, magic club. Uh, if you say up, don't say up or down. So he says up and it starts beating him on the head. It says down and it stops. So he takes it to the innkeeper and says, don't say up. And it starts beating up the innkeeper forever. Uh, and he steals the magic items back and makes his riches. Oh, okay. So it's a lesson about like, so, so we really that one really is directly a lesson about like don't fuck around with the rules of something that you don't really understand. Yes, it's um, like it's some sometimes things have an inherent power to them that you don't mm. know how to deal with. And also, I, I took, don't trust innkeepers. Yes, and don't trust innkeepers. I took four lessons from this. Uh, they have lots of magic items. Yes, tons of magic items. Um, they love free labor. Yes. Um, like so much so that even if the kid has lost two of his magic items, he's willing to give more. Give more of them. Yeah. Um, they're bound to oaths. Um, he didn't eat him because the kid was in his service, uh, and he was forgiving. He was willing to believe him a second time, and a third time. Um, yeah, it, it, it's very clear that that story is just talking about like royalty. Like it's the, it, that's not even so much an allegory as just straight up like this is just a ruler. We're just going to make him an ogre. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's. The sort of that's what I took from that that era of mythology as ogres were being defined. So, in the last sort of little bit, I know I've harped on for far too long, um, but essentially, when you're thinking about including ogres in your game, rather than just a big thing that hits stuff, um, have a think about these sorts of things. There's obviously they are shapeshifters. That has been very consistent throughout almost every myth of ogres. Yeah, you should definitely be giving your ogres access to some wild shapes or some transmutation yeah. spells or something like that. So I, in our last game, I experimented with an ogre that had wild shapes just like a druid would mm. um, with a favoured form of a lion. Um, now, it does seem like they have their favourite forms, but also they are able to transform into different stuff. Also, other humanoid forms. Yeah. Um, and I, again, played with this a little bit in our game by allowing... This, this ogre to change size. So his true size was enormous, but to get around normally, he would just walk around as kind of like a, a tall dude. In fact, no, he walked around almost dwarven stature. Uh, you described him originally as like a weird-looking halfling. Yeah, he was about four or five feet tall, wearing a bear skin that was way too big for him. Yeah, it seemed like, because my character's a goblin, it seemed like he was just like another kind of goblin kin. Yeah, and then he started growing until his head touched the ceiling. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, this was in a in an arena battle. Yeah, um, I, I decided to to get into, like, an illegal cage just, fight. An illegal cage fight. Um, and then Tully was like, cool, well, the enemy's an ogre. And I was like, oh, fuck. And then Tully was like, the ogre can shapeshift. And I was yeah. like, oh, the ch- <laughs> shit. Um, and it was a close fight. It was. It, it got was. down literally to one I HP. I had one HP by the end. In fact, um, you were knocked in unconscious. Fact, no, by. he did. It was, but it was because uh, the only reason I was knocked unconscious was because I knocked him unconscious while he was grappling me, and he dropped me. Yeah, uh, was the reason I still technically won the fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and my character sat outside of the cage fight and had popcorn because yes. I said, you know what, uh, I got like seven HP left. I'm going to sit this one out, guys. Uh, you go, you go ahead and have fun. Yep. Um, um, so that goes into <laughs> changing size as well. Rather than just like um, illusion, I think 
it, it makes sense for ogres based on the various descriptions of sizes and being able to have to run homes and talk to people, but also have, be enormous creatures that they can truly reduce their size mm. and that their standard size is just big. Yeah, it's just very big. Yeah, and I I think the thing the thing that I took especially from uh, the stories that you guys brought mm. um, is ogres really seem to be uh, to my mind one of the better opportunities to introduce this idea of, like, a pagan magic to your world. Yeah. This idea of, like, an inherent and powerful magic. Because in D&D, we treat magic, I feel, very often, and for good reason, I think, because it makes it more manageable, it makes it easier to understand um, to the people that are playing. But we treat it too much like a science, I think. Yeah. Um, And you've got to remember that, and and I talked about this a bit during our Plagues episode as well, like, this was a time where doctors were writing cures down in their medical notes that were literally just strap a snake to you for this condition because anecdotally, I've seen people who have done that get better. Yeah. And the the explanation for that was, oh, well, it's just magic. It's an inherent magical property of this item uh, and the way it interacts with this with this condition, uh, and it's completely not understandable. There's no reason to try and understand it, and the only way that you could understand a lot of this magic was literally just through experience. Yeah. You just happened to have to find out that this snake amulet worked, and, and I, then the snake amulet just worked, and that was it. You couldn't explain it from there. It was just how it worked. And I think that it's this is a really good way to bring that stuff in by yeah. having these like weird rules that ogres have to follow and all their magic items and stuff and having them like be weirdly following a bunch of social conventions but disregarding like prohibitions on murder. Yeah. Um, I think is just a really good way to bring in this idea of like sometimes things just have inherent rules and inherent qualities to them that we don't understand, which was such a big part of medieval life. I mean, the reason that these that these stories picked up is because that was how people looked at the world. Yeah. If you thought you could understand the world, then you wouldn't care about these stories because it would seem the same as it seems to us, like fiction. But to them, it's like fucking anything can happen. Yeah, so try and make your ogres a little bit inscrutable, not because you're pulling shit out of your ass, but because they are, I guess, greater beings that do have uh, some form of rules that you don't quite understand. Yeah, you should have rules to these things. You don't have to have a reason for those rules. Yeah. Because you weren't supposed to. They were just how things worked. The same as we happen to live on a planet with air. Yeah. It's just how things are. And so my ogre in our town is the apothecary and i'm looking forward to a little more interaction with that's with actually that a, that, yeah that actually is a really good way to, yeah. to do that to just put him straight into like fucking some pagan bullshit yeah pretty much he's he's the pagan bullshit guy in the town yeah um so yeah any, anything else you wanted to add grace not really no yeah. no i think it's covered we got pagan bullshit we've got big boots we've got cats Hell yeah. I think that's going to be the soundbite I used to advertise this episode. Fuck yeah. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thank you very much for listening once again. uh, It's been stunning being back in the studio uh, with with these wonderful people. I'm sure, I'm hoping that they enjoyed being here with me. Um, Yeah, but I'm not going to like... Not going to say it. Tell Tully that. Yeah, I'd never admit it to him. Cool, we've got two intelligent people and a numbskull uh, in a studio once more. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get in contact, uh, 
Be sure to catch us on our socials uh, at Dungeon Deep Dive. Or shoot us an email at deepdivetnc at gmail.com, which yep. I actually remembered for once. Um, and I promise I'll check it. I say that every time and I don't, but this time I mean it. Tweeted us because um, everyone keeps ignoring the fact that I keep sending memes to Dungeon Deep Dive Twitter account and nobody ever reposts them from the inbox. So make sure that the account gets used so that people pay attention to my cheese meme. Well, uh, look, that has been us for another another fortnight. Thank you so much for sticking with us so far. Or if you're a new listener, thank you for joining. Until then, I don't have a sign off. We love you. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.